You'll pardon the interruption, right? Don't you hate interruptions? I think, you know, there's a part of a woman's brain that is perfectly attuned to the NCAA tournament and knows the precise moment at which your team, down by a point, is going to inbound the ball with just four point seconds left. And that's the part of the brain that triggers her to want to talk to you. <laughs> Pause buttons were created to save your marriage, guys. It'll be just as exciting a few minutes from now, so uh, go ahead and give in to that. Yeah, good save, she says. <laughs> you know, but uh, I don't like being interrupted, do you? I mean, I hate it when it, somebody interrupts me, especially when I'm, I'm trying to talk over them. Uh, I, I just think that's, that's terribly, terribly rude. Um, but, you know, one of the things that happened in, in the ministry of Jesus was he was constantly being interrupted. Right? I mean, he'd, he'd just be walking along with the crowd, talking to them, and, and some guy named Bartimaeus would go, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And everything would have to stop. They'd have to interrupt the, the, the teaching time, the fellowship time, and the walking time. They, everything interrupted for, for Bartimaeus. You know, or some lepers cry out outside of the city, you know, have mercy on us, and everything has to stop for them. They interrupt the flow of things. The woman with the issue of blood touching the hem of the garment of Jesus. Over and over again, people were interrupting Jesus. And the great thing about him is that every time he stopped and he met their need. Well, almost every time. There was a time when there was a heckler in the crowd. And Jesus was talking to him. And and, uh, this heckler cries out. He says, uh, Jesus, tell my brother to give me my inheritance. You know. And you can just see what's going on in, in, in Jesus' mind. He's thinking, I'm here talking about the kingdom of God, the glory of the creator of the universe, and you're worried about some lawsuit you have with your brother. And so he says, hey, look, who made me a judge over you and your brother? He says, yeah, there's more important things than that. But, uh, uh, but people were constantly interrupting Jesus. Great thing is sometimes Jesus would interrupt other people. He'd go to a bunch of guys who were fixing their nets by their fishing boats, and he said, you come follow me. And they allowed their lives to be interrupted, and they followed Jesus, and it was never the same again. To Matthew, he says, you, you follow me. He never went back to the tax business ever again. His life was changed. When Jesus interrupts your life, things change, and they're never the same again. That's sort of what Paul is talking about when we get to Ephesians chapter 3, and we are in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1 right now. Uh, But that's sort of what he's going to talk about. But first, he's going to interrupt himself. Uh, He's he's been talking to the, or writing to the the Ephesian believers, Jews and Gentiles, and he's told them about the, the wondrous grace of God to choose us, to redeem us, to seal us in the Holy Spirit, and how that that salvation comes to us totally by grace, and as a result of that, the Jew and the Gentile together are brought together by one gospel into the body of Christ. Remember, we talked about that uh, last week. And so um, Paul has, has been leading up to this, and now he, he, he wants to pray uh, on behalf of the Gentiles. And so he says, I, Paul, a prisoner of, of Christ, on behalf of you Gentiles, and it dawns on him, maybe they haven't gotten the point yet. Maybe they don't understand what I've been setting up for. So, so he interrupts himself. You, you can tell this. If you look at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, 
Paul says, for this reason I, Paul, a prisoner. Then he interrupts himself in verse 2, assuming that you've heard about me. And then if you go to verse 14, he says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. In other words, you could go straight from chapter 3, verse 1 to verse 14, and grammatically, and in terms of flow of the thought, uh, it, it would be a seamless journey. So he's interrupting himself. He's saying, I, Paul, on behalf of you Gentiles, an apostle on behalf of you Gentiles, wait a minute, maybe, maybe you don't quite grab the point yet. And so he says, assuming that you've heard about my ministry. He says, I'm assuming you know my story. Because the story of Paul is a story of being interrupted by Jesus on the road to Damascus. Now, we all know this story, or most of us know this story. Um, Paul was, was persecuting the Christians, throwing Christians in jail. And uh, he's on, his ro- uh, on the road on his way to Damascus. And there he's going to throw more Christians in jail. And we know that. And Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? And Paul says, oh, no. And his life has changed, and he becomes an apostle and preaches and starts all these churches and, and writes some of the New Testament. There's more to it than that. And we miss the depth of what happened when we just glance through it like that. Remember that Paul was just talking about how the Jew and the Gentile are brought together in Jesus Christ. One plan of salvation. There's not the legacy plan for the Jews and the, the entry plan, the introductory plan for the, uh, for the Gentiles. It's not as though the Jews get in on the basis of heritage and race and the Gentiles are going to get in now. They need Jesus so they need the blood, but the Jews, are, they're okay already. No, there's just one plan. We're all sinners. We're all children of wrath. We all deserve death, but we are saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And, and that, that truth, that reality that Paul is preaching was something that gave, came to him not by argument or persuasion, but by the interruption of God in his life. Understand what it, what it, what it meant for Paul. He'd spent his whole life believing that Jews were the special people, that they were the ones on the inside track with God. Because of their tradition, because they had the law, the scriptures, because they had the promises and the covenants, because they had the sacrifices and the temple, because they had all these things, the Jews were already pretty much tight with God already. Paul knew that. And in fact, what really ticked him off and got him to throw Christians into jail wasn't that they were just this new group of people floating around. And that basically was okay. I mean, you had all different kinds of Jews back then. You had Pharisees, you had Sadducees, you had Zealots, you had Essenes. And if the Christians had just behaved themselves and gotten in the temple courtyard and had their Bible studies and talked about God and things, they would have been a little flaky, but at least they would have been acceptable. The problem was the Christians started talking about giving the grace of God, extending the grace of God to the Gentiles. Uh, what the book of Acts will call sometimes the Hellenists, the Greeks. And when we first encounter Paul, what is he doing? He's actually watching people stone Stephen to death. Stephen was the first Christian martyr. Why was Stephen being singled out for persecution? It was because he was one of those who believed the gospel was also for the Gentiles, for the Hellenic believers as well. That was a technical term for it. And so he's being persecuted because he gets in front of the Sanhedrin. He says, you know, God's not impressed with the fact that you're a Jew. 
And God's not impressed with the fact that you have the temple and, the, and, and all these. Because all you've ever done is persecute the prophets God sent to you. This is in Acts chapter 7. And Stephen goes through the history of Israel and says, which one of the prophets did you fail to kill? He says, you know, I mean, this is Carnegie uh, approach to influencing people. And, and, and at that point, you know, the, the, the Sanhedrin rose up. Why? Because their uh, established Judaism was under attack by Stephen. And Paul was in agreement with them, and he watched the coats of those who were actually throwing the stones. This is what made Paul um, upset, was these Christians were talking about the grace of God being given to Gentiles. And so he's on his way to Damascus, by the way, a city up, you know, sort of out, outside of, of uh, Jerusalem and in, in the circle of, of uh, Jewish uh, 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 control, if you will. And so he's on his way there to inflict his view of Judaism on these Christians who have the audacity to share their belief, their faith, that God is for the Gentiles too. So this is what Paul is doing when God stops him. So you couldn't have argued Paul out of that position. You couldn't have told him he was wrong. You couldn't have shown him he was wrong. You couldn't have, have displayed to him all the wonderful things that Gentiles do and how they're wonderful, beautiful people and have a rich culture and all this and deserving of, 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 of attention and all that. That would have made no impact on Paul at all. What made an impact on him was when God stopped him on the road to Damascus. He saw Jesus and he heard the word of Christ. Saul, why are you persecuting me? And his life changed. He was never the same again. In fact, instead of persecuting Christians basically because they preached to Gentiles, he became a preacher to the Gentiles as well. His life was never the same again. You know, that voice of God, when it interrupts your, your train of thought, it will change you for all eternity. Um, you know, we talk about hearing God and what God says to us sometimes. What we mean is that uh, we have been reading the scriptures and trying to understand God's plan and we're trying to put together uh, the wisdom that God has, has placed in, in the Bible for us. Sometimes what we mean is that we've been uh, listening to brothers and sisters in Christ and we're, we're trying to um, get their insight and their wisdom on what we should do or what should happen next. And these are ways in which God speaks to us. But on very rare occasions... For most of us, once in a lifetime, God actually speaks, actually speaks. I've done this with, with senior Christians, you know, uh, people who've been in the faith for decades and decades. And I've asked them, said, has God ever spoken to you? And I don't mean, you know, just the, the scripture and the worship service and, and somebody said something, you read a book or something. What I mean is, were you ever in a situation where you thought this is the voice of God speaking to me? And it would surprise you, maybe it won't, how many mature Christians will say, yes, I have. And I'll ask him, i say, was it a long message? I mean, did he sit there and, and expound on the meaning of the Trinity or something? He says, no. Usually it's about three words, three or four words. And that was it. And it changed their lives. I said, has it happened again? They said, no. Happened once, that was enough. And so it's not like we're living in this, you know, spooky Charlton Heston voice coming down all the time. But uh, the number of Christians, and it's not necessary that, that, that uh, this has been your experience, but understand, there are a lot of believers who have heard the voice of God and it has changed their lives. And that's what happened 
to Paul. When Jesus spoke to him, it absolutely changed his life. Now, um, in, in terms of our text this morning, um, understand that this thing that the Jews and Gentiles are all saved by grace, that was something he didn't comprehend. He wasn't for that. And that's why in verse 6, Ephesians 3, 6, look at that. Paul says, this mystery, now a mystery is not a divine whodunit that you have to figure out. A mystery is something we could never figure out, but God shows us what, what it is. And so he talks about this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He says, that's it. He says, that's what I never understood until God spoke to me. And once I got that in my head, my life was changed. And so as we read this passage of Scripture, that's what Paul is doing. He's saying, I want to pray for you folks, but before you do, you've got to know where I'm coming from, that I'm coming from the position of someone to whom God spoke, and my life was changed, and now I understand it's all grace through faith for Jew and Gentile alike. With me? Amen. Amen. Thank you. Okay, so let's start reading. We'll start reading at verse... uh, Uh, One, read through verse 6. It says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, dash, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Let's bow together in prayer. Gracious Father, I'm just praying for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit upon us this morning, that your Spirit would guide us into the truth of your Word, that your Holy Spirit would awaken our hearts and our minds, our understanding, our will, and our emotions to just be more deeply committed and devoted to your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray your Holy Spirit would awaken us to those things in our lives that need to be addressed and need to be changed. Father, that your Holy Spirit would bring upon us a conviction, but then also the comfort and the consolation to know that in Christ all things are possible, and in Christ forgiveness is possible, and redirection is possible, and recreation is possible. Father, that your Holy Spirit would work in our midst today to revive us to that excitement and that joy that was ours the first day we believed. And Father, that we would rejoice to see your grace still at work in our lives. Father, I pray your Holy Spirit would just work in our midst to bring us closer to you through your Son as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I think I can identify with the Apostle Paul uh, as he interrupts himself uh, because as, as he's writing to these uh, Ephesians, uh, he's so anxious that they, that they get it that he, he goes back over other territory. And, and essentially what he says is, you know, if you're going to understand what I'm saying, you have to know where I've been. And you have to know what God did for me. You have to have that in mind, or else the rest of what I'm saying just won't make sense to you. I can identify that. Because there are some things you have to know about me, or you won't understand 
my preaching or my ministry. For one thing, you have to understand how incredibly good-looking I am. <laughs> you see, you've lost it already. <laughs> All right. That, is, that, is that holy laughter? Was that what that was? And sanctified giggling? But what you have to know is that I did grow up in a Christian home. And by the way, if for no other reason, we ought to stop now and sing the doxology about a hundred times. When you're born into a Christian home, just think about those things from which God spares you and keeps you from having to experience so many things when you have a loving mother and father who love Jesus and impart that, that commitment and that faith to their children. Uh, what a great testimony. I didn't, I didn't choose to be born into a Christian home. I didn't get a, a, an application form to fill out my top three picks of families to be born into. I know some of you are thinking, I wish I weren't born into the family where I was. But I am grateful to God that he had me born into a Christian family where my mother and my father were believers and could show me what it meant to be a believer in Jesus Christ. And, and you, you, you just have to know that. Um, you, you probably need to know that Debbie and I met our senior year in high school. Um, we were in, the first class we had together was, uh, was choir, and uh, I was sitting here, and she was sitting up over here, and I just remember how she turned around, and she fell in love with me. She was so smitten. <laughs> well, I may have some of the details wrong. But, uh, but we did. We started dating in high school. We were engaged, and then uh, through four years of college, we were engaged and then got married uh, just less than a week, I think, before Debbie actually graduated. Uh, then we became government workers. We worked for the Social Security Administration, and now I'm cashing in on those folks. So, you know, there's kind of like a, uh, a good thing there. So you, you have to know something about uh, our journey. You have to know that Debbie grew up in a Christian home. Her father was a pastor. And, uh, you know, I, I could not have picked anybody as wonderful as she is, given a thousand years. There is, there is proof of the grace of God in my life just because of her. Um, as has been said, in my small world, she is a proof of divinity to me. You have to know that I have two sons of whom I am immensely proud. Uh, do you know what a joy it is to, to sit where I am on Sunday mornings? And as I'm looking up, I've got... My sons on either side of my field of vision, and my wife in the middle, as it ought to be, and uh, you know, and just to know we're all worshiping God together, and and sharing a faith together, um, and uh, uh, God has been so gracious to us. Um, and then the, the the ladies that they married, the women they married, our daughters-in-law. Um, I I am just so thrilled, and I thank God that these are the ladies my sons picked. They didn't let me pick their wives. I don't know why. But, but when they chose, they chose two of the finest human beings in the world, and they chose just the perfect people to be the mother of my grandchildren, and that's what matters the most. So, you know, I'm just, and, and, and our, our grandchildren are, are just uh, wonderful. Pictures are available upon... <laughs> But uh, anyway, but you have to know this about me because God has been wonderfully, wonderfully gracious to me. Uh, you need to know that, um, uh, that I was called into the ministry and that uh, um, I've, I've um, uh, been preaching now. For over 40 years I've been preaching and at this church, about 30, 36 and a half years or something. Who's counting? Uh, and uh, you, you just need to know those things about me to understand where I'm coming from. Uh, but 
there's one more thing you need to know about me if you're going to understand who I am. And that is that I arrived at my sophomore year in college hating my brother. And when I say that, I don't mean, oh, well, we used to pick at each other. You know how kids fight, and, and you know, there's just a little bit of rivalry and all that. No, I, what you need to know is I resented him. I was jealous of him. I was angry at him, and I hated him. At that time, had you been in a room where my brother and I were together, and by the way, this is none of Ken's fault. It's not any of his fault at all. This is all on me. It's, it's just things that, that, that uh, reared up in my head and in my psyche, and it took 12 years of self-therapy to understand what was going on, and, you know, those kinds of things. I mean, it was really a nut job. But uh, it, it wasn't his fault, but, but from my standpoint, I grew up hating him. Uh, some of it had to do with the fact that I just couldn't keep up. Uh, he's 13 years older than I am, and it took 12 years for me to realize, 12 years of therapy, uh, when I say therapy, folks, it was self-therapy. I did a self-examination. I'll tell you about that sometime. But, it, you know, after 12 years of, of just looking at my child, it just dawned on me one day that it was like having a twin brother who got a year's head start on you. you know, like I was supposed to keep up with him, but he got a year's head start academically and physically and all those other leads that, that, that matter. I was always trailing behind, and I think I resented that, and I, and I didn't like the fact that no matter what I did, he was a little bit better. Now, it didn't help that my brother is something of a total and complete genius. I don't think they would let him in the Mensa Society because they're not smart enough for him. I mean, he's, he's up above there. There, there. There's, Well, I could go on about that. He's got a photographic memory. When you're just talking about a, you know something that you think happened, he's quoting the sources word for word. And now you're starting to hate him too, aren't you? <laughs> but, uh, but he's just, just a brilliant, brilliant human being, and I just could not keep up with him. And I think, the, you know, as a child, what you do, you develop defense mechanisms. And sadly, one of the things we, we develop sometimes is anger and resentment, and, 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 it, and it gives birth to hatred. And so I wound up in my sophomore year of college hating my brother. If we were in a room together, you would feel the tension. It would be almost electrical how much I hated him. In fact, the only thing Debbie and I argued about at that time was my brother, you know. She married me anyway, but, um, but uh, uh, you know, we would argue about that because she saw the way I was, I was reacting to him, and it was, it was just uh, unpalatable um, to anybody with sensitivity. And so um, I, I hated my brother. Now, at that point in my life, God did two things for me. The first thing he did was he made me absolutely miserable. Um, he, he did not let me be happy in my hatred and my anger and my resentment. Uh, he kept throwing verses of the Bible in front of me. Uh, one of them was 1 John 4, 20, and that one says something like, if you say you love God, but you don't love your brother, if you say you love God and you hate your brother, it says you don't love God and there's no life in you. Well, I, I, was, I was good enough at it that I could explain that away. Well, this is just spiritual talk. It's just talking about your spiritual brother or, or a brother in Christ, you know, as a church member. And, and it's not saying you really don't have any life in you. It's just, you know, you, it's just like things aren't really top-notch or anything. And, and, and I just couldn't get away from the fact that the plain meaning of the text, and here's what it actually means. If you say you love God and you hate your brother, there's no life in you. And you don't love God. That's it. God kept throwing verses like that at me, and I was miserable about it. 
And, and I knew it was wrong, and it was, it was a source of great pain, but I wasn't going to give it up, because after all. So God, first of all, made me miserable. Oh, the grace and the love of God will, that will not let us go. Oh, the love of God. You know, sometimes you, you, you hear preaching that's all about, God is all about making you happy. God is about making you wealthy. God is about helping you fulfill your destiny. I want you to know sometimes God is about making you miserable. Because sometimes we just need to be set back in our, on, on our heels and, and, and just, just be shown the miserable nature of what we're doing and the impact it's having on us and, on, and upon others. Sometimes what God does because he loves you is he makes you miserable by the power of the Holy Spirit. I didn't know to phrase it that way, but it was a conviction coming on you. And so the first thing that God did was he made me miserable. And I thank and praise God that he made me unhappy. And then the second thing God did for me, well, let me show it to you. Some of you have seen this before, but you're going to see it again. This is in John chapter 13. If you have a Bible in front of you, open it up. There's one in the pew in front of you. Open it up. You've got to see this for yourself. That um, in John chapter 13, this is the last night of the earthly ministry of Jesus. He's going to be crucified the next day. And so John uh, talks about Jesus in the upper room, and it says, Before the feast of Passover, this is verse 1, uh, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world. He knew that he was about to be crucified, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. See, Judas was there. Judas was there in the upper room. And already Judas had decided that he would betray Jesus. We don't know if he was upset at Jesus, mad at Jesus, trying to push Jesus in and, and manipulate him. We don't know exactly his motivations, but what we know was G Judas was going to betray his friend Jesus, and Jesus knew it. In fact, okay, so there you go. You, so you've got Judas in the room, and you've got uh, the disciples in the room. And at that point it says, and what Jesus did was he arose from supper, and he took off his robe, and he got a towel and a basin, and the King of kings and the Lord of lords held a basin for his orb and a towel for his scepter. And he went to his friends, the disciples. The Bible says that he started washing their feet. And it dawned on me as I read that in, um, in, in, in my dormitory room in my sophomore year of college as I was reading this passage. It dawned on me that you can't wash somebody's feet unless you get down on your hands and knees. And so Jesus, the creator of the universe, got down on his hands and knees, and he went from disciple to disciple, washing their feet. He came to Peter, and Peter, being the level-headed and quiet guy that he was, said, you know, Jesus, no, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus said, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you, you can't come along. You'll have no part of me. I've got to wash your feet. And so Peter went to the other extreme and says, well, wash everything about me. And, and, and Jesus said, no, no, Peter, you're missing the point. Just let me wash your feet here. And the scripture says that he went around and he washed the disciples' feet. And when he was through... He put on his robe, 
And then he sat down with his disciples and he said, guys, do you know what I've done? You call me Lord and Master. He says, and you're right, that's what I am. But if I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. And in that moment, it was impressed upon me that Judas was still there. And he doesn't, he doesn't leave until, oh, until the end of chapter 13, verses 27 following or so. Judas was still there. Jesus washed the feet of Judas Iscariot. If ever there was somebody who had a right to be angry at somebody else, Jesus had a right to be angry at Judas. If there was ever anybody who had a right to say to somebody else, I don't need to pay attention to you. You are a negative influence in my life. You're you're just sort of a a presence for, for bad things in my life. If anybody was ever able to write somebody off, Jesus at that moment had the right to write Judas off. And instead he washed his feet on his hands and knees. Jesus washed the feet of Judas Iscariot. And this in the fall of 1971, sitting in my uh, college dormitory room on the basement floor in a corner where if you looked out the window, you could see the, the chapel just off to the right. The voice of God came to me. It was just this. Wash Ken's feet. And at that moment, the anger and the hatred and the jealousy left me. And it has never come back. See, I don't have any trouble believing in the resurrection of Jesus. Because the voice of God rolled a stone away from my heart and and I came to life again. That's when my life began. I don't have any trouble believing that Jesus walked on water because for for months afterwards, I was walking on air. I don't have any problems believing that Jesus could work miracles because by the voice of God, he worked a miracle in my life. And he took away the anger and the resentment and the hatred, and it has never come back. Folks, I still deal with the, you know, the, the aftermath, and it's a kind of an interesting thing to go back and realize your defense mechanisms and childhood thinking and all this other sort of stuff. It's, it's interesting, but it all comes back to this, God took it away from me, and it has never come back again. God interrupted my hatred and took it away. It's never come back. Well, I'd like to tell you that I ran to my brother and we embraced and hugged and, and now we, you know, we pal around together. No, that's not true. I still can't keep up with him. He still knows more than I do and he still has a photographic memory. <laughs> but I'll tell you this. I went home for Thanksgiving holiday and uh, my mother came up to me. She said, Wayne, what has changed you? You know, when your mother can tell things like that. And I told her the story. We wept together in the kitchen in Westminster, Maryland. 
I would like to tell you that, you know, I explained this to Kendall. No, I, you know, and I, I can't even tell you I, I did anything differently. All I know, I was changed. And the anger and the jealousy and the hatred just wasn't there anymore. And I was able to suddenly do things like rejoice with him when he rejoiced. You know, when good things happened to Ken, I was able to be happy for him now. You know, uh, I, I should have told you. You know, Ken never graduated from high school. He skipped his senior year to go to MIT. <laughs> and uh, I, I mean, you, you, you see what's going on here. But I could rejoice with him, and, you know, and, his, and his career developed, and he, he became a lawyer, and that's, that's another story, but uh, and became a lawyer and, and would bring home the law questions and, and would just talk around me. You know, I could rejoice with him. You know. And so you're going to have to understand that if you're going to understand me. You're going to have to understand that so you'll know what I'm talking about when I say things like God loves you just the way you are. But he loves you too much to leave you there. He loves you so much he's going to bring you out of where you are to where you need to be in Christ Jesus. You'll understand why one of my favorite verses is rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep because I find it easier to weep with people because at least I'm not suffering. But when they have joy and gladness and success and wholeness, you know, it takes something to be happy for other people when things aren't so great yourself. You'll understand where I'm coming from when I talk about that. You'll understand when I, when I sing maybe just a little bit louder, oh, love that will not let me go. You'll, you'll, you'll understand it um, when, when you, you, you hear me sing something like, you know, Jesus, you know, um, uh, you know the, he, he's, the, uh, what is, he's the great shepherd. And the rock of all, all ages, and almighty God is he. Bow down before him. Worship and adore him. Jesus, my Lord. See, it's just a song until you get to that word, my. And then it becomes a testimony. I want you to understand why that's not a song. That's a testimony for me. You'll understand why I can sing a song like, Just as I am without one plea, but that his blood was shed for me. I want you to understand why I can sing that song. It's because I had no other plea. The only thing I had to offer to God was a heart full of anger and bitterness and hatred. And the voice of God took it away. And you'll understand a verse like this. It's in Ephesians. You thought I'd forgotten. Verse 7, chapter 3. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. See, Paul's interrupted himself. He said, you, you can't understand what I'm saying unless you know where I've been, and you won't understand what we're talking about. You need to know this about my life. And what I want to tell you is the same Jesus is reaching out to you the same Jesus might be making you miserable today. It's to get your attention. The same Jesus is able to take away all, every burden, every distortion of the heart. This same Jesus is able to heal broken relationships. This same Jesus is able to, to bring you up out of death and to transfer you into the kingdom of God's dear Son. This same Jesus, what he's done for others, he'll do for you. It's no secret what God can do. 
what he's done for others, he can do for you. So I just pray for you this morning that, that you would just be open and alive. Maybe the voice of God, you know, like I say, it's a very rare thing. happens once in a lifetime for most of us. You never forget it, I'll tell you that much. But you know, as God speaks to you through Scripture, through a, through a friend, through a Christian brother or sister, as God speaks to you in, in the music and song and in literature, as God speaks to you, let the Holy Spirit transform your life. Because I want you to understand what happened to me. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, how thankful I am that you are a God who is mightier, more powerful, deeper and wiser than our confusion, doubt, weakness, sickness, and sin. Father, I'm so thankful that you're a God who is interested in bringing us into life out of death. Father, I'm thankful that you are the God who sent your Son to die for us. And again, I just pray for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit to touch hearts and lives, to awaken minds. Father, to speak to every person here that together we would sing your praises for all eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.